I want to share, uh, really from my heart, we're uh, not going to, believe it or not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a strong effort to not preach as long today. That, is, that in itself is going to be an amazing thing if that actually happens. Um, but uh, we're going to try to have a shorter service, and then we're going to have our meal, and, and I'll kind of give some tips and pointers on how we're going to go through the serving lines after that. Um, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, Luke the 6th chapter, and I'm going to read from verse 27 through verse 38, Luke 6, 27 through 38. Part of this passage um, I shared a couple of weeks ago, um, but I want to I flesh it out a little bit more as we, we talk about kind of what I consider to be a, a major aspect of the spirit of, the spirit of thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. It says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, Offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, even in this passage, it says those who can hear, those who have an ear, hear. God, give us an ear to hear, Lord. Spiritual insight and receptivity. God, that your word would transform our lives. And we wouldn't be that foolish person that's described in the book of James that sees their reflection, walks away, and forgets what they look like. Let that not be true of us. Father, we ask for your power and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to tell you as a preacher what I'm aware of. Right now and next week, pastors are searching the scriptures for sort of uh, non-moving target passages that have to do with gratitude because it's Thanksgiving time and so they're looking for these passages that talk about thankfulness and they're they're preaching, their, they're making out their notes, and they're preaching their messages about being uh, grateful, right? 
and everybody's expecting it, and um, there's a certain comfort in that. It's Thanksgiving. The pastor's going to preach on Thanksgiving. I guessed it. Do I get a prize? All right. So um, I'm, I'm going to talk about that, but this, this passage is very interesting because the only reference to gratitude in this passage is how God is kind to people who aren't grateful, right? This passage talks about broadly, and, and maybe this struck fear into the hearts of my listeners because we did the Lord's Prayer, which is like six verses, and it took us two and a half months. So here you read this passage, like, oh, no, you know. How long are we going to be in Luke chapter 6? Just today. So um, this passage on a whole speaks to something that I think can best be described as generosity of spirit. It describes something that quite frankly is supernatural, is not natural. Um, And I want to start with a story about Thanksgiving to kind of drive the point home. Um, How many uh, grew up and you're going to school and Thanksgiving time comes around and there's all these images in your head of the first Thanksgiving, right? So there's, you know, there's, uh, there's pilgrims, you know, and there's turkeys and there's pumpkins and there's corn and the, um, the pilgrims had those, those guns that opened up at the end, right? The blunderbuss, right? How many colored pictures of those you know, in school? And then, of course, you have the Indians, right? The Indians show up, and they have uh, Indian corn. We know that because we hang it on our front door at this time of year. So um, we have these images around. Um, I want to tell a story, a true story, about a meal, a coming together of people of this country, you could say white people and Indians, but it didn't happen uh, in the early 1600s that I'm talking about in the northeast of the United States, but in the early 1800s in the northwest of the United States. So um, in the fall, it's a fascinating story. First time I heard it, I was just amazed by it, struck by it. In the fall of 1805, uh, Lewis and Clark and their expedition called the Corps of Discovery had just crossed the Bitterroot Range of uh, the Rockies from Montana into northern Idaho. And there they encountered a tribe of Indians known as the Nez Perce. How many have heard of the Nez Perce, right? So they encountered the Nez Perce Indians and they were as spent, meaning Lewis and Clark and their group of of explorers were about as spent as you could possibly be. They were wrung out. They'd, they'd crossed this range. They had all this expectation of finding the Northwest Passage. So when they saw those mountains, they went over the first line of mountains and they expected to see the sea. And instead they saw more mountains. And so they went over these mountains and by the time, and they're all wearing moccasins and they have to, their moccasins just wore out and they'd have to uh, shoot more deer and make more moccasins and wear those out. And they were just absolutely as spent as you could possibly be crossing that range of mountains. And they were as vulnerable as they had ever been in this, in this journey that they were taking. They were a year and a half in 
It had already been a year and a half since they left St. Louis. And so they were there, and they were camped out, and the Indians initially received them, and they were in the camp, and all these braves, all these Nez Perce braves gathered together and were um, discussing what are we going to do with them? What are we going to do with them? They have the best guns we've ever seen. They have seemingly endless supply of shot and gunpowder. They have all these other things, medicines. If we take them, and it's not going to be hard for us to take them. We outnumber them. They're completely spent and weak. Some of them are sick. Some of them are wounded. We are going to be the most wealthy, powerful tribe in this whole area. Nobody will be able to resist us. And they, were, they had made the decision, we're going to kill them. This is a historical fact. And as they're pondering this, they get word from an old woman of their tribe. And she was across the, the camp, their, their settlement, and she sent word. And she said, listen to me. This says something about Indian culture, that you got all these braves and there's this old wise woman. And she sends word and she says, what, she said, when I was a little girl, I was captured by the Blackfoot Indians. And I was sold into slavery, and I was sold to other tribes, and I was sold from tribe to tribe out east until some white fur traders bought me. And those white, they bought, they bought me out of that slavery. They bought my freedom, and they treated me kindly. This is historical fact. You're like, yeah, yeah, that's impossible. How could they have, how could, how, of all that, wouldn't the Indians have treated them kindly and the white people treated them cruel? But the reverse was true. All these uh, warring tribes treated her badly and these white fur traders actually treated them, treated her kindly and they got her to a place where they, they could put her in the hands of Indians that would be nice to her and treat her well and they set her free and she came back to her tribe and she said, because those white people treated me kindly, you should treat these white people kindly. And so um, they said, okay, we will. We won't kill them. We'll help them. Just like that. On the word of the kind deed of, of some fur traders whose names we will never know. We'll never know their name. They were kind Years previous, probably in the mid-1700s, because now she's an old woman. It happened when she was a little girl. They were kind to her, this woman. And that kindness, that one act of kindness lived in this woman's heart until now she was an old woman. And she vetoed the action of this whole group of men, of braves in the, in the, in the tribe, overruled them. And they said, all right, we're going to be kind to them because you say so. So, in, so they threw a meal. And in the meal, they fed them salmon great Northwest thing, and they fed them the root of a plant, of a flower that was high in starch and protein, and it was a staple in that time, and it was called camas. So they, they, the, the, the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest Thanksgiving was salmon and camas. And they, they ate, and they helped them on their way. And because of that, they reached the Pacific, and they helped them on their way back. And if that, all that hinged on that one act of kindness to that little girl. 
uh, who at the time and now an old woman. If, if those people hadn't been kind, history would have unfolded very differently. Thomas Jefferson would have said what happened to the Corps of Discovery. They never would have gotten back. Uh, the history of the area would have unfolded differently. Probably the British would have maintained control. And I can tell you right now, we wouldn't be living in a town named Camas in a county called Clark. That, it, it, that history, we, we would not be here. I mean, that's just very simple. History would have unfolded very differently, and we would not be congregating here if one family of fur traders hadn't shown kindness to one lost, enslaved Indian girl. That's a remarkable truth, but we, we have to consider some things about that in the light of the passage that I'm talking about this morning. I want to focus in, a lot going on in this passage, but I want to focus in on the very end because we're about ready to eat. And I'm going to tell you, if, in case you don't know, about Thanksgiving eating. It's not polite eating. It's not dainty eating. Restraint is not the order of the day, right? So it's about feasting. And you look at the last passage, and it says, Give, and it will be given to you. Verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, when I first came into uh, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Holy Spirit churches when I was in college, and from that time in different churches, I heard preachers use this passage as an offering passage, right? How many know what I'm talking about? You, you quote this passage and say, okay, you're about to write your check for the church, you're about to make your offering, or you're about to do your missions pledge, or you're about to make your faith promise for whatever we're needing to do in the church or whatever. And just remember Luke 6.38. With the measure that you use, it'll be measured to you. So spell thousand, T-H-O-U-S, right? So you're making out your check. So this is kind of this, um, I have nothing but love and respect and reverence for the people who taught me, but I always felt that was kind of like a pinky finger twist, you know, like somebody grabbed me by the pinky finger and was twisting behind my back. Like, now listen, I'm going to tell you something. For all that people say, oh, that's, you know, that's false teaching and we can't. The Bible does, in fact, talk about um, the generous giver harvesting. The generous giver being refreshed. That's Bible truth. Now, if that's the only truth we preach, then we're starting to distort it. But it is, in fact, part of the biblical message. Uh, can you track with me on that? That's in Old Testament. That's in New Testament. People, you can't, give, you can't outgive God, right? You can't outgive God. So giving to God, that's true. All that's true. Now, that said, let me say this. Luke 6.38 is not about that. Luke 6.38 is the caboose of a whole passage that doesn't talk about money primarily. There is a thing about lending, right, and, and, and expecting nothing in return. But even that is in the context of a larger picture. The larger picture is about our spirit. 
It's about our inner attitude. It's about our heart. It's not so much about money. He's talking about not judging. He's talking about forgiving. He's talking about loving your enemies. He's talking about answering kindly to those who curse you. He's talking about praying for those who abuse you. He's talking about something that is so much deeper than just how much we give. And as the pastor, I want to tell you, I appreciate you giving and we need you to give. But I'm going to stay true to the text. I'm going to stay true to the scriptures here because this is a deeper thing. God wants us to have a generous spirit with each other. So after he's talking about this generosity of spirit, then he says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Right? Judge not, and you're not going to be judged. In other words, you're using that measure, it's going to come back to you that way. Condemn not, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and it will be given to you. The giving that he's referring to there, not to say that this couldn't take a material form, but it begins in your spirit. It begins with an inner attitude that's really grounded in everything before. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. I want to tell you this I heard somebody say one time, the difference between milk and meat when it comes to the word. How many are familiar with those terms? The milk of the word versus the meat of the word. There's the milk, there's spiritual milk, and there's spiritual meat. People make this mistake. They think that spiritual meat is something that is complicated. Like if it's, if, you know, oh, we're going to study the book of Revelation. That's complicated. Right? Now we're going to read the Beatitudes. We're going to read, you know, Matthew chapter 5. Well, that's simple. Everybody preaches on that. That's milk. Actually, it's probably the other way around. I wrote my dissertation on Revelation. I've continued to do a lot of study in Revelation. And the message of Revelation is incredibly and artfully presented in ways that I don't have time to explain in the next five minutes. But... The core message is actually pretty easy to digest. The core message is God alone is to be worshipped. Come what may, God alone is to be worshipped. The days are coming when we will be put to the test on that core issue. But that's pretty straight. That's, that's pretty simple and straightforward. It's not necessarily meat. That's the ABCs of the faith. Meat is that which is difficult to digest. Meat is that which is more advanced and requires a deeper level of spiritual maturity to put in action. Turn the other cheek when somebody strikes me, that's meat. Right? This is one of these things, bless those who curse me, that's meat. Just because it's simple, just because it's, it's, it's not a complicated concept doesn't mean it's easy to process, right? So this is the meat of the word. Um, I was talking to somebody this weekend talking about how it's not natural that we should love each other and trust each other. I'm just going to say that. It's not natural that we, as a group of people gathered together, 
what, I've been here as pastor three months. Other people are new to the church. Other people are not new to the church. And you're like, you betcha it's not that. That person hurt me. <laughs> so it's not natural that we should trust each other. That's the point. The point is we are, we are known as his disciples by our love. Not because it's natural for us to love each other, but because it's supernatural for us to love each other. Because it's beyond our natural ability to do it. We need the grace of God, and we walk in the grace of God. Now, there's not a soul that knows anything about Christianity that has had anything to do with Jesus, that's read the Bible at all. Even sinners know this. Even sinners know that Christians are supposed to love each other. Even Christians know that Jesus said we're supposed to love each other. Even, even, even baby Christians know we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for our enemies. There's no church anywhere in their doctrine that doesn't affirm doctrinally that God is love. Right, everybody gets that. You're never going to talk to a Christian who's a, who's, a, who's a historical Christian who believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. You're never going to run into one who says, well, God isn't love. And you say, well, here, it, right there, right, right there in 1 John. Well, I just, that's just not what I believe. You're never going to run into that person. But why is it? In spite of the fact that we all know that God is love, that we've all read these passages, right? We've all read these passages, one time or, or have them read to us. Why is it that some people walk in love and other people are mean as snakes? And they're still calling themselves Christians. Why is that? Why is it that in some groups of people, even denominations, right, there's, there's a spirit of love, there's a spirit of warmth, there's a spirit of redemption. And I'm not talking about this loosey-goosey, wet noodle, like we accept everything. I'm talking about people who, who draw the line, speak the truth, but they do it in love. They're like, these things are sin, we need, we need to repent. But they, but they walk in love. And there's love, and there's forgiveness, and there's acceptance, and there's second chances, and third chances. And there's, there's redemption, there's welcome. And then in other, it's just... I was talking uh, with my son Joseph, and uh, in his business travels at one point, he went to a church in Minnesota, and um, the church is pastored by a national-level religious figure, right? This is somebody who is on the national stage. If I mentioned this person's name, you'd know them. You'd know them. Written a lot of books, um, does lectures, I mean, is, got, has a doctorate, is, is very prolific, very well known. He said it's the worst church experience he ever had. He said the people were just flat, cold, mean, and unwelcoming. Now, I'm going to tell you, I know the doctrine of that speaker, and that, that person declares they believe in the grace of God, declares they believe in the love of God, declares that forgiveness and redemption is found in Jesus Christ. Why is it that some, everybody agrees on the doctrine, but some people walk in it and some people don't? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it simple. There's a difference between having something be your doctrine 
and having something being a living truth that penetrates who you are and affects you at the level of your personality. People who talk about churches talk about church culture. I'm gonna, that's a, that sounds like a big term. Like There's different cultures. There's a culture to the Pacific Northwest. There's a culture to the Great Plains. There's a culture to the Deep South. I don't even know what I'm talking about. It's different. I remember when I first moved from Indiana, northern Indiana, to Louisville, Kentucky. I was checking out to see if it was going to work. Right? If I, and I did, it did. I went to seminary there. That's where I met Patty and married. And from there, we went to the mission field. But I remember the first weekend I was there, it was May of 1986, I had graduated a couple weeks earlier, and I was sitting on the front row of this church, and it was after the service, and a woman came up to me, and I didn't know anybody there, it was my first weekend there, and this woman comes up to me and she says, are you um, so-and-so, And because and, and, she said, what's your name? I said, you know, David Thomas, and she said, are you so-and-so that was involved in this, and there was this, that, and the other thing, and she named this whole... I said, oh, no, ma'am, this is my first weekend here. She, she nods. She said, yeah, I didn't think it was you, but I just didn't want to pass you by in case it was. Like, on the off chance that she might have been slighting me, that she might have been snubbing me, on the chance that she might have had a responsibility to greet me because they, we had some common ground, she came up and initiated the whole conversation. And when, when she found out it wasn't it, she goes, yeah, I didn't think it was you, but I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't being rude to you. Now, how often do you think it's going to happen in the Pacific Northwest that way? Right? Different culture. Different culture. Here's, here's what I want to say about this. We need the grace of God. We need the love of God. We need the supernatural in- intervention of God's love to work in us. But we got to be aware of where we're going and where God wants us to go. And this passage describes the spirit of the earliest church. The earliest Christians were so crazy radical in their love that they conquered the world of their time with love. They didn't have radio. They didn't have publishing houses. They had no political party that backed them or, or, or defended them in court or defended them in the, in the halls of power. It's an entirely a grassroots movement. They just loved people into submission. Because they took this stuff literally. And they just loved, loved, loved. They had a, a generous spirit. I could put that another way. An uncomplicated spirit. God, it's your mind, whatever your mind is, some people are, are more complicated in their thinking than others. That's that's whatever. But your spirit, we're all to have spirits like a child, right? We're all to have uncomplicated spirits. What happens with a complicated spirit? We get hurts. We get disappointments. We get wounds. How many know what I'm talking about? Bad stuff happens, and we start to accumulate clutter. It's like a, it's like a log. A tree falls in a river, floats downstream and then it gets caught on a rock and then pretty soon what gets caught, something else gets caught. First there's the rock, then there's the log, then there's sticks, then there's garbage and pretty soon you've got this whole thing and it's just a tangled mess. All because something bad happened and then it just, that's what can happen inside of us. And when you have a complicated spirit, it can be very, very difficult for you to flow in the love of God. 
for, because you've got all these hurts and you become, you be, you're like, you're like, a, like animals. You know how animals have a hurt and they kind of hide, they kind of shield it, they kind of favor that side. That's what we do. And so it hinders the flow. That's why we need the love of God to come in and melt that stuff and to flow in us. Jesus is the generous one. He's the copious one. He's the great one. And his kindness toward us 2,000 years ago is still bearing fruit, just like the kindness of those people to that little Indian girl. There's this domino effect. But we got to let it hit us. It's like we're the braves who are deciding whether to be kind or not or whether to... God wants us to have that. He wants us to have that generous, generous spirit. I want to, uh, I want to tell you another American story about kindness. Um, almost 60 years after the event with Lewis and Clark, America was in the pitch of the Civil War. Um, and there was a man, and his name was Bakewell. Bakewell was separated from his wife and his children, and he was in the danger zone of Virginia where all these battles in the Civil War were going on. And he was stranded. He was trying to get to Canada, but it was very, very dangerous, deadly dangerous. People were dying by the thousands. Um, and he ran into a friend of his, uh, from St. Louis, kind of interesting that Phil, uh, Lewis and Clark started in St. Louis. Well, these, uh, Bakewell was from St. Louis, and he had an acquaintance, and his acquaintance's name was Cook. And he appealed to Cook, and he said, I, I've got I've to get to my family in, in Quebec, Canada. And Cook inconvenienced himself, put himself at risk, and made it happen. And Bakewell escaped, and he made it to Canada. He met up with his family. About a month later, Bakewell got the bad news that Cook was dead. Cook had died. And he wrote a letter from Canada to Cook's mother in St. Louis, consoling her on the death of her son, Cook had left behind a large family, kids, a widow, and uh, consoled uh, her and thanked her for the help, the risk, and the inconvenience that Cook had gone to to save his life and to save his family. About 90 years later, um, a young man walked into church in St. Louis, was sitting there in his pew praying, and he looked over, and he saw a pretty girl. And that was the beginning of a love that turned into marriage. The young man was Cook's great-grandson. The young woman was Bakewell's great-granddaughter. They did not know when they married 
that their ancestors had known each other. And they only discovered it through the letter that they discovered in family archives years later. Isn't it funny how an act of kindness performed centuries earlier can affect us today? That affected me very greatly because that young man and that young woman are my mom and dad. Kindness You know, sometimes I prefer that word to love. That might sound almost blasphemy, but love is a word that is so misused today. It's so overused that people, as Christians, we almost don't even know what it means anymore. Um, I heard, I've heard people say, well, the love of God, the agape love of God, isn't emotional. So now you have people excusing the fact that they have absolutely no tenderness in their heart toward their fellow Christian on the basis that love isn't emotional. Um, the, the basis of the love of God, what drives the love of God in our heart is not emotion. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. But it does affect our emotions. It does affect where we live. And it does, if it's doing its work as God designed, it does yield kindness. Let's be kind to each other. Let's have a generous spirit with each other. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your people. God, we're, we're a kind people. We're a loving people. We're a people with the blood of Jesus in our veins. Father, let a generous spirit flow in us. God, we want to be grateful to you, but we also want to be like you. And you're kind and you're gracious, even to people who are ungrateful. Help us be that way. Help us walk in that kindness. God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.